0: stuff. It's so good to be gathered here together. All of you who got out and brushed off the car, maybe you had to shovel the driveway a little bit. Thanks for, uh, thanks for your commitment. For those of you who canceled last minute, um, you got up and you said, I'm going to church, and then you looked outside and saw the snow and decided, to the stream, um, just want to say, I've got a list and I'm going to read it through. No, I'm, I'm not. Not going to do that at all. I actually don't even really know how to work our database. But, the, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, if you're watching at home this morning, whether you decided to sleep in or whether you, um, that's just the way life is right now and you need to be watching us at home, we love you, we miss you, um, and we're praying for you. Uh, this morning, we are beginning our Advent series. And uh, Advent, as Cole articulated a little bit earlier on, we so often we jump into the Christmas. It's about lights and celebration and the songs and everything else. I mean, I don't know what preparing for Christmas looks like. In your house, in ours, it means our kids are up bright and early just constantly living with anticipation. Christmas is coming. Christmas is coming. I'm constantly catching them sitting on the couch, just looking through toy catalogs, just excited for Christmas to come. And for us as Christians, we don't want to jump right to the Christmas morning because for us, while we are filled with hope because Jesus has come, we also realize that Advent is a season of active waiting. It's a season of sitting in that tension of knowing that Christ has come and that Christ is going to come again, and we are waiting. And this is not a passive waiting. This is not just sitting back and letting things happen. Rather, it's in a process of getting things ready, preparing our hearts, and living as witnesses to the coming reign of Jesus. And so for us, we take this series title very seriously, A Light in the Darkness. We look at our world, we see the darkness around us. We see the darkness in our very own human hearts. And as we look to Jesus, we see the light that shines, not only in our world, but in our lives. Uh, The passage that was read earlier on from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, where it talks about this. It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness a light has dawned. And so for us, that is our hope. Jesus has come. That light has dawned. And for the church, as theologian Karl Bart would say, he would say this, that the church is always consistently in the season of Advent. Doesn't matter what time of year it is, we are always in that place of waiting, longing, and actively preparing for the return of Jesus. And so throughout this series, as we focus in on what does it mean to be a people who who live, who hold on to, who cling to the light of Jesus in a very dark world, we're going to be looking at a particular book in the Bible called the Gospel of John. And throughout this book, Jesus uses language around light to describe himself. And so as we look at this, these different passages together throughout this series, my hope Is that one, it is going to give us a deeper and richer understanding about what it means when we talk about Jesus being the light of the world. And secondly, that it would help probe our hearts, that it would open up the parts in our hearts that are hidden and shrouded in darkness, that Christ's light might shine on us and in us and through us. So I invite you, would you please join me in prayer as we dive into this series this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you that the light has come, that while we were a people who walked in darkness, through no achievements of our own, you took on human flesh, you lived among us, you died for us and rose again, you shone your light upon us. We pray even now that we would open up our hearts, that you would expose every shadow, that we might know you more deeply, that we would follow you more closely. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Well, a number of years ago, uh, I was with a bunch of friends up at a camp that I was working at, and I had this experience. It was evening. We had some friends working at another location, kind of just off-site, and I decided, hey, guys, let's go visit our friends who are working over at that site. It's just an easy hike. It's about 10, 15 minutes. Let's go over there and see how they're doing. We can even have some fun around the campfire with them. This seemed like a great idea. I'd made this trek or this hike numerous times before. I felt pretty confident. Ah, I'll be able to get us there. The issue was is that it was nighttime. In this particular camp up in the Muskoka's there aren't a lot of street lights around and there are woods that you have to walk through, paths that you have to walk along and it gets very, very dark. And so as we were walking along, I remember looking, we had a flashlight with us and we we're looking and kind of looking for the various different landmarks that we would use as we would walk along this path. And here's the thing that I began to notice, that when you're in the dark, things look different. Things that are easy to see are not so easy to see. The, the, the confidence that you have, suddenly you realize, oh wait, I don't know, wait, is that the turn? Is that, because usually there'd be this and this and I, I can't see that anymore. And as we went on and on, uh, my uh, 18, 19 year old brain, uh, actually, if I'm really honest, it's still the brain that I have now, um, just did not want to admit I didn't know where I was really going. And eventually we get to a point where that confidence level just starts to drop more and more because I know, okay, we're going to make this turn and then we should see these steps that lead up over this rock face. And I realize those steps aren't there. And oh, wait, there was supposed to be a bridge, I think, that we were supposed to walk over. And that's, and I realize we are lost in the woods in the dark. It's hard to find your way in the dark. We were fortunate enough. We just walked out. We could see where the lake was, and so we walked towards the lake and then just walked along the shoreline to ultimately get back to the place we needed to be, but we weren't able to get where we wanted to go. I think for a lot of us, at different times in our lives, we have felt like we are in the dark. Now, sometimes it's a literal thing. It's in your house, or it's like my experience, walking through the woods. But sometimes it's in the dark in so many other aspects of our lives. We know there's a place we want to go. We know there's a certain kind of person we want to be. There's a certain kind of life that we want to live, and we find ourselves getting lost in the process because we don't know how to to get there. The darkness makes it so much more complicated. There's an image circulating online that has just just kind of made me laugh. I wanted to share it with you this morning. It's simply titled How to Draw an Owl. And for those of you who are artists in the group, this might be helpful. It says, how to draw an owl. And so it says, figure one, draw two circles. Figure two, draw the rest of the dang owl. And I know for me, I, I look at this image and I think, how often does life feel like that? There's this picture of, oh, okay, I know these are the steps, and then it's like, again, this is the final product, and it's all that in between that I go, how in the world do I do that? Maybe it's in your workplace. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's in just your family. You're going, I want my family to look like this. I know what the end product is supposed to look like, but to get there, I have no idea. And just like me, wandering around in the darkness, you think you've got all the steps figured out, and then you realize, oh, wait, it's, it's way more complicated than I thought. There, there's all sorts of other details, and I, I have no idea how I ultimately arrive at that final image. Sometimes it feels like our lives are shrouded by darkness, and it makes it so difficult to know what way to go. Which brings us to the Gospel of John. If you've got a Bible with you, I invite you to open up to John chapter eight. That's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. Because so often when we think about Jesus, I think a lot of the times when we talk about what the Christian life is supposed to look like, it's that same image of the owl. It's like this this final picture of, okay, we're supposed to be Christians and our lives are supposed to look like this and perfect and great and awesome and all of those different things. And then you go, but wait, how do I get to that point? And so here, I think Jesus begins to open up our hearts and our minds to speak to us in profound ways about what that means. So if you have a Bible, open up to uh, John chapter 8, starting at verse 12, and we're going to take our time working through this passage. Starting at verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, this particular passage follows just shortly after what we find in John chapter 7, which begins with Jesus going to the temple to celebrate something called the festival of tabernacles. Now, the idea behind this festival, it was used to celebrate the people of Israel and God leading them out through the wilderness. So, sometimes this festival was called the festival of booths or the festival of tents. And the idea for this was that they realized that God had been with them and journeyed with them through the the darkness and the difficulties of the wilderness. And so what they would do is they would gather together and actually still Jewish people celebrate this festival today by setting up tents or forts in their backyard or in their living rooms. And it's a way of remembering that God came and dwelled with them even when they were lost in the wilderness. And it is also a season where they remember the significance of light. That God, even in the midst as they're walking through the darkness of the wilderness, that God provided a pillar of fire to lead them and guide them. Now, if you look here, there's an image of the temple. This would have been the place. This is actually called the, the court of the women, this particular part of the temple. And if you look to the, either sides of that giant door, this is a model representation of it, you'll see that there are these massive 71, uh, over 71 feet tall lamps. At the very top of them, you kind of see there's these four, like kind of like a little, almost like a four-fingered hand reaching up. And those are giant bowls that were filled with oil. And during the festival of tabernacles, they would light, those giant lampstands there would actually be a wick made out of priests their old robes and it would give light to the entire city this bright burning light it would light up the whole city people would be camped out maybe setting up their 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 tents or their their little booths to celebrate the festival people coming in from outside the city to go and to celebrate at the temple and they would see these massive massive lamps giving light to the entire city and beyond. And so for them, this was a significant and important celebration for them. And throughout this time, they would read from a passage from the prophet Zechariah. They would have a special festival day to celebrate this, the lighting of the lamps. And these are the passages that they would read. They'd actually read through this whole chapter of Zechariah 14. I want to highlight two specific verses, verse six and seven. It says this, On that day there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light." You can imagine just how this would resonate with them because they're thinking about the coming of the Messiah, this person who's going to lead Israel, help establish them as the people that they were created to be. And they had this symbolic, bright four lanterns giving light to the entire city and beyond. And so when Jesus talks about this, I am the light of the world, go back to John chapter eight, verse 12. When Jesus says this, It is a loaded, significant thing to say. This is not just Jesus making some sort of divine claim about himself. He is saying something they would immediately be associating back with this particular festival. And he is saying something about the Messiah, the reign of God. He is essentially saying, I am the Messiah who has come to show you all the way to home. Now you can imagine this is going to be responded to in an interesting way by the religious elite, the Pharisees. And so their immediate response, we see that in verse 13, the Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. And so their response is Jesus is making this claim about himself. I am the light of the world. And their response is essentially to say, well, you need to prove yourself. You can't just go around saying these kinds of things about yourself. I'm the light. They're saying, no, 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 you cannot go around saying that. Now, our immediate thought, or at least my immediate thought, as someone who's kind of steeped in thousands of years of Christian theology and, and specifically evangelical theology that just places a serious, very intense, um, uh, intense focus on the divinity of Jesus and arguing for the divinity of Jesus, which is so important and so incredibly true, But one of the things that I think is important for us to realize is that that is not immediately where this debate goes. Their immediate concern for Jesus is not that he has suddenly made some sort of divine claim about who he is. Their immediate thought is, wait a minute, who says? Like, give us a list of references. You can't just go around saying these kinds of things about yourself. To to talk about language of being uh, the light of the world was not brand new and certainly wasn't exclusive to Jesus during this time. There was a community that lived outside the city of Israel, a group called the Essenes, who thought the religious temple system had been corrupted, that they were not being the true people that they were called to be. And so they had sort of set up their own community, their own place to worship, and they referred to themselves as the sons of light. In fact, they actually had some very important religious texts, one that was called The War of the Sons of Light Against the Sons of Darkness, some light bedtime reading material for you. And so you can imagine, as they're talking about this language around lights, this was not brand new exclusive stuff to Jesus, and this is not a divine claim that Jesus is making specifically about himself, rather this is about making a claim about an intense and an intimate relationship with God. This is about making a claim about the true way to be and to live out as the people of God. And ultimately, this is a claim that Jesus is saying he is the redeeming work of God in this world. He is the Messiah. So they want to know, what are your references? Prove yourself. How can you be saying these sorts of things about yourself? And notice Jesus' response. Now, if you were to go through and read through the Gospel of John, you would see all the amazing signs and wonders that Jesus has performed. Different things that he has done and followers who have said, oh, their minds are blown as they see what he has done, as they hear his teaching and they go, we are going to follow you. We're going to be with you. Jesus has recently just fed the 5,000. So he has done all sorts of things. He has, uh, he has an incredible resume and he has all sorts of people who will vouch for him. But that's not what Jesus responds with. He doesn't give them that list and he doesn't begin saying, oh, well, you should check with this person and this person, and this person, they'll vouch for me. They'll let you know what I'm really thinking or what what I'm actually about and why what I'm doing and saying about myself is legit. Listen to Jesus' response, starting at verse 14. Jesus answered, "'Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from and where I am going. You judge by human standards.' I pass judgment on no one, but if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. And so essentially Jesus' response is, I'm not going to give you a whole bunch of answers. And do you want to know why? It's because I don't need to defend myself to you. I know what this ministry, this claim flows out of. It flows out of my deep and connected relationship with God. He says, I'm sent by God. For us at Christmas time, we celebrate that Jesus was sent by God. He says, I don't need to prove anything to you because you're working with a totally different standard. You have this picture of what God is supposed to be like, what he's supposed to look like, what he's supposed to be about. He said, no matter what I do or who I, what I try to be, be and do, I'm not going to make you happy. He says, but I don't need to, because I, my job is not to win you over. My job is to represent the one who sent me. Now, immediately their response is, well, you're talking about your father. Where is your father? And now, it's unsure as to exactly what they are understanding that Jesus is saying here. They seem to bring the conversation back to a conversation about biology. And so they're going, well, where is your physical father? He can come and he can share what's actually going on here. Does he someone in authority? Is he someone, was he a famous rabbi? Was he someone who's studied under other famous rabbis and he's handed down things to you? And their thought is still purely on the earthly sense. But then notice Jesus' response in the verse that follows. So they ask him, where is your father? And Jesus flips the table on them. And he says, you do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And Jesus challenges them. He says, you have this picture of what God looks like, but you're in the dark. You actually don't know God at all. Because the relationship that I have with God, Jesus is saying this, the relationship that he shares with his Father, the work that he is going about flows out of his life and his connection, his intimacy with his Father. He says, the fact that you cannot see that, the fact that you are not aware of that, reveals that you actually don't know who God is. I love the way that biblical scholar Leon Morris puts it. He says it just this way. He's talking about Jesus establishing himself as the, right, as the light. And he says this the light establishes its claim, not by arguing but by shining. Jesus could jump into a massive argument about who God is and and all the things that they have factually gotten wrong in their heads, but instead he goes, no, no. Like He says, if you can't see what I'm doing, if you can't see how this is an expression and an embodiment of who God is and what God is about, there is no reference that will change your mind here. I often wonder if this is something that we as Christians, we need to take a little more seriously, which is simply this. We often get so bogged down in arguing for the existence of God. We often get so bogged in reading different apologetic literature, uh, things that are about the proof of God's existence, and there's real value, and these are things that it's important for us to be somewhat well-versed in as we engage the non-Christian world around us. But I can't help but think maybe we put a little bit too much effort into the arguing and not enough effort into simply shining, into living out and embodying, into to working towards establishing, having a, a, a deeper, intimate, connected relationship with God. And how often that is so much more persuasive and so much more impactful in our relationships and our connections with people and with helping them discover that God is real, that has less to do with a bunch of factual, intellectual arguments, and has more to do with our intimacy and connection with God and the way that just flows out of our lives. Because the Pharisees, they know all the stuff. They've got all the information. They know their Bible inside and out. They know all the right kind of prayers that they are supposed to pray, and yet Jesus is calling them out because he says that all of this information, this isn't actually drawing you closer to God. This hasn't made you more intimate and more connected with who God is. In fact, it's actually gotten in the way because you don't know God. This is is why you can't develop a meaningful relationship with a person simply by memorizing flashcards, right? Right? I mean, I've tried this. It doesn't work in my marriage. No, I'm just joking. I haven't tried it in my marriage. But it's true. You can't develop that kind of relationship. Rather, it comes as you submit yourself in loving service to the other person, in a longing to listen and to understand and to hear, not just simply about what they can do for you, but rather how can you listen and understand and live for them. Going back to verse 12. Jesus hits on something that I think is so profound, and I often miss it every time I think about this. Notice Jesus says this, I am the light of the world. Okay, so blinding, beautiful light, yes, amazing, light in the darkness. And his response to this is, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's a part of experiencing and encountering the light of Jesus. Part of living into the deep, intimate relationship that Jesus shares with his Father is one that we only discover as we follow Jesus. This is language that Jesus uses throughout. Actually, throughout all of the Gospels, but specifically in the Gospel of John. If you just go right to John chapter 1, verse 43, he calls another disciple. And here's the same word that he uses. We just translate it as follow me. John 1, verse 43. He said to them, he being Jesus, we can get that up on the screen. He said to them, or him, follow me. He says, submit your life in service to me. For so many of us, we can easily gear or drift into the same kind of mentality as the Pharisees. It's about information. It's about abstract thoughts, and Jesus is actually challenging us to say, "No, no, this is about a lived-out mission in your lives of deeper, more intimate connection with God." I love the way that uh, there's a pastor in Brooklyn, New York who refers to it this way, the journey of discipleship. This is about following. It's not about becoming perfect. It's not about having it all figured out. Rather, for him, he frames it in this way. He says it so beautifully and succinctly when he says this. It's not about being, living perfectly, but wrestling with something faithfully. It's about journeying with Jesus and saying, I want to live for you. I want you to come in and change and transform my life. It's about the various different, the intersection of all the different parts of our hearts and our lives, both the internal parts of us, so our desires, our dreams, our passions, our angers, our loves, all the different names that we've taken upon ourselves, good names, bad names, and holding them up to the light of Jesus and holding on to the things that Jesus says, yes, this is true about you, this is what I say about you, and letting go of the things that Jesus says, no, these are not true about you. And following Jesus is about the external. It's about the kind of habits and routines that we are developing. It's about the way that we live and the way that we navigate the different relationships that we have. And it's about holding those up to the light of Jesus and saying, is this in sync with what Jesus is about? John 8, chapter 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. To conclude, there is a quote from C.S. Lewis that I just, it resonates me. I think I heard it originally about 15, 20 years ago and I continue to think about it today because I believe it it captures so beautifully the calling of discipleship that is at the heart of the Christian journey. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And as we submit ourselves to follow Jesus, to be his disciples, to use the language of Dallas Willard, to be apprentices to Jesus, we allow him to shape us and to become the light by which we see everything else. People are no longer things to be used to help prop us and and build up our own ego, but rather people are there because they are created in the image of God and they are meant to be loved and valued and treasured and to share the love of God with. And all the various other aspects of our lives suddenly take on new light and new meaning and new purpose in light of the mission of Jesus in this world. Jesus is the light of the world. And whoever follows him will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. As we transition to the communion table this morning, I'm reminded of a quote from theologian and pastor Fleming Rutledge, where she simply writes this, Advent begins in the dark. This morning we lit the Advent candle for hope. And as we did it, we are reminded that we live in a world of darkness and that Jesus is our hope. And so as we come to the communion table this morning, we were reminded that we are a people who were lost to the darkness but have been redeemed through the gracious gift of life that comes through Jesus. It is sometimes easy to be blinded to this fact. Sometimes we're blinded by the darkness of despair as we see the sin and evil that runs rampant in our world. And whether it's wars or injustice, poverty, disease, the misuse of wealth and power and material blessings, or we see the relationships that are torn apart by selfishness or abuse or addiction or pride. And the tendency of our human hearts is to grow calloused and cynical. We can be blinded by the darkness of despair. And then sometimes we're blinded by the darkness of false optimism. We live with Uh, an imitation hope that is rooted in the myth of human progress and achievement. We look to the next technological innovation or medical breakthrough. We are enamored with the new political leader who will finally bring about the change we believe is so desperately needed. We become enchanted by the new fad diet or app that will somehow change our world, or at the very least, change our lives. And sometimes we're blinded by the darkness of distraction. We live our lives insulated and ambivalent from the pain and brokenness in our world, distracted by entertainment and meaningless achievements. And we fill up our closets and our garages and our schedules and our imaginations with things that aren't bad in and of themselves, but so often become the sole focus of our lives as our hearts become consumed with a passion for those things that are cheap and meaningless in the grand scheme of God's kingdom. And whether it's the darkness of despair, or the darkness of false optimism, or the darkness of distraction, all of the darkness, we're blinded by it, and we can't see in it, and we're unable to walk as we were created to walk, unable to see things as they truly are. It is a darkness that cuts us off from the life God created us to know and to live, As we come to the communion table this morning, this first Sunday of Advent, we are reminded of the cross, an instrument that was meant to bring death, but that God in his infinite wisdom and creativity used to bring life. As we come to the communion table, we acknowledge the darkness in our world and the darkness in our own hearts. And so let's take some time to be quiet before God to lament the darkness we see in this world, and let's take some time before God to lament and confess and repent of the darkness within our own hearts.